0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. If you thought Super Tuesday clarified the presidential nomination contests, here's senior fellow Elaine Kmark explaining why it's far from over.
1: Hello, this is Elaine Kmark. I am a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and I'm the author of Primary Politics, Everything You Always Wanted to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidents. So let me start today's podcast with the following observation about the press. The press, as my friend Walter Shapiro, himself a journalist, says, is very fond of premature certainty. And that's what they're doing with this race. After Super Tuesday, everybody said, Trump, 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 inevitable, inevitable, And um, Clinton has it all locked up, has it all locked up, Bernie Sanders can't get to her. Neither of those things are necessarily true. First of all, Super Tuesday has always been the point in the nominating process where we stop looking at individual states one, and we start looking at the all-important delegate count. Now, we can't do that on the evening of the primary, and there's a good reason for that. Delegates are awarded to congressional districts and sometimes state senate districts. So that means that you have to wait a while to get all the votes in, separate the votes by congressional districts, which, by the way, are not always contiguous with counties, which is how most votes are reported, and then calculate who won how many delegates. As the day went on after Super Tuesday, we started to see a variety of different delegate counts. So let's start with the Republicans. Trump has 319 delegates as of the afternoon after Super Tuesday. Cruz, 226. Rubio 110, Kasich 25, Carson 8. If you add up those four candidates, they're actually slightly more than Donald Trump has at this moment. I do not think that Donald Trump is walking away with this race at this point. Of course, he could. The polls look good. And in a sequential system, winning has an impact on the subsequent races and winning creates sometimes more winners. Uh, So, of course, he could do well. But the fact is that this is not over yet. In fact, it's far from over. If you look on the Democratic side, if you take out the superdelegates, who, by the way, have never overturned the results of the public contests. Hillary Clinton has five hundred and forty-nine delegates. Bernie Sanders had three hundred and forty-eight delegates. And there's somewhere over a hundred uncommitted delegates. So that race is a little bit clearer than the Republican race. But nonetheless, there are all, there's always the possibility that Sanders could catch on later in the week and, in fact, later in the season, rather, and take over from where Hillary Clinton is. So this race is still in its formative stage. Two things to remember as we go forward. One is that a big change will happen on March 15th, which is the second Super Tuesday of this contest. There are five big states on that day. Four of them are basically winner-take-all primaries in the Republican Party. So what that means is that rather than Trump and Cruz and Rubio and Kasich splitting up the delegates at stake, Trump, if he's still on a roll, could walk away with a big delegate hall from at least four of those states. And then maybe we can say that Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee. Um, and so that's what we need to watch for on March 15th. On March 15th, the Democrats will play in those same states, but they will still have proportional rules. Finally, bear in mind that the final decision – on who not who gets nominated is actually up to the delegates who will meet in Cleveland for the Republicans and Philadelphia for the Democrats this summer. Most of the time, the delegates put on silly hats and cheer for their candidate On cue. Most of the time, they simply reflect what happened in the primaries and the caucuses that took place in the preceding seven months. But we always have to remember that just because that happens most of the time doesn't mean it happens all of the time. This has been a very unusual year so far, and it could become an even more unusual year by the time we get to the conventions in the summer. Thank you very much.
0: My guests in the studio today are Kuteba Alibi and Bobby McKenzie. Kuteba is a native of Damascus, Syria, who became actively involved in human rights and democracy at the start of the Syrian revolution in March 2011. After he was detained and tortured twice by Syrian government security forces, he made his way to Lebanon, then to Egypt, and is now in the United States, where he currently works with the Syrian National Council and the Syrian National Coalition. He is the co-founder and director of operations for People Demand Change. Bobby McKinsey is a visiting fellow in the Project on U.S. Relations with the Islamic World here at Brookings and was recently a senior advisor for countering violent extremism at the U.S. State Department. He is a native of the greater Detroit area. Welcome both of you to the show. Thanks Thank for having you. us, Fred. Uh, Bobby, it was a fascinating and moving event that you helped put together very recently uh, and included Kutteba and three other Syrian refugees. Leon Wieseltier uh, was mm. our moderator. The event was called um, Who We Really Are, and I encourage all listeners to go to our website, Brookings.edu, search for that, listen to the event. Bobby, can you talk about how that event came together? Why did you put on an event like this?
2: Sure. That event was actually on the margins of a day-long private roundtable. Where we brought together Syrian American leaders from across the country. Um, one of the if there is one positive from uh, the Syria crisis, it is that Syrian Americans have mobilized and united in ways that they would have never um, in any other d- um, set of circumstances. And they have cobbled together um, a range of organizations that have grown in sophistication collectively. These organizations have distributed over 300 million in um, aid to a range of um, uh, humanitarian support both in Syria and in frontline countries. And we wanted to bring these Syrian-American leaders to the table um, to get their own expertise, their own knowledge, and hear from them um, the ways that we might want to think more about the Syria crisis with special reference to um, the Syrian refugee situation. And so we had uh, three panels where we um, were able to... uh, have an open and candid discussion um, about the Syria, uh, Syrian refugee crisis. And it was um, after that that we held the public conversation. And it was really uh, Leon Wieseltier's idea that we have a public conversation with Syrian refugees, that we move beyond the policy wonks, because often what you have in, in capitals like D.C., are you know the the policy wonks who talk about the refugee experience but um far too um you, not often enough do we have a conversation with refugees themselves to hear about their own experiences of um you know large scale forced migration of displacement of having to um live in frontline states of having to be resettled to other countries so we wanted to bring their their voices um to the table and i i think that the panel um spoke for itself it, it was Uh, you know, an extraordinary panel. It was stunning and powerful um, with haunting stories of of forced migration. Um, What I should also say is when we, when I started to reach out to Syrian American um, leaders across the U.S. to say we'd like to bring together a panel of refugees, they were also insistent that we have a composition of of refugees who were um, interesting and different and folks who would contest, you know, you know American notions of what it means to be a refugee. We had um, Kutaba, who's an activist doing amazing work. We had another gentleman here who's worked with the Holocaust Museum. We had Mariella, who is a concert violinist and, and performed before President Obama um, at the Kennedy Center. We had a gentleman uh, from uh, Boston who is a uh, medical professional and also in a, um, you know teaches at Harvard. Um, so they were really keen, the Syrian-American community was really keen to make sure that we had refugees um, who, who brought different kinds of experiences here in the U.S., and um, I think that's what made for, um, uh, you know, a really um, fruitful uh, conversation.
0: I've, I've been at Brookings for nearly 20 years, and I'll just be honest and say it was one of the most uh, moving events that I've ever seen during my time at Brookings. So I'm, I'm glad that you put it together, and I thank you for participating, Kateba. Thank you. And you introduced yourself by saying that you are, quote, from a middle-class conservative family in Damascus. What did you mean by middle-class and conservative?
3: Um, Hi. Thanks for having me here today. Um... Middle class, I mean, my dad uh, worked in Saudi Arabia for seven or eight years. When I was born, he moved back to Damascus. He got enough money to um, invest in the market and start a small business where he didn't really need to be like on the top of the business. And he spent most of his time um, just, you know, raising us um, and being with us um that's generally middle class in damascus either they have like a small business they can live from or it's not like really they do any job that takes 9 to 5 every day from them um conservative as we um we go to friday prayers every every week um i try to keep on my prayers my daily prayers um not very successful with that um my mom wears um, hijab um, on her, but um, still my both of my families from my dad and uh, my mom's side are liberals.
0: Can you take us back to March 2011 when you were about 21 years old? What happened that made you join your fellow Damascenes on the streets? Um,
3: I mean, I consider, I think it was easier for me than other people. Um... I got raised in a very um, political atmosphere, I would say. Um, my dad was a, one of the latest, um peace and interfaith activists in Syria since the 60s. He was detained four times between 1965 and 1980, the first time he was 16 years old. Um, after 2000, he was leading interfaith between Sunnis and Shias in the region, in Lebanon, Syria, and Iran. Um, and, I mean, I remember since I was a kid and— um, I told, like, um, so that event, but I, when, since I was a kid, um, I would go to my dad, ask him, like, you know, regular questions about, like, what is going on, about, like, some specific stuff. And he would never answer me anything. He would never tell me, like, oh, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. He would actually, like, you know, to, uh, point to some book in, like, one of, in, like, our huge library at one of the shelves. He'd tell me, like, pick up that book and come sit here. And I would come, I would start reading to him. And he would either, like, cor- I mean, the only thing he would correct to me is actually, like, my Arabic reading. And then, like, through what I'm reading, he would ask me what I think. And then I would tell him, like, tell him, like, oh, this and this and this from what I read. He would tell me either, like, you know, keep going on or, like, don't you think this, inter-, you know, um, there is a contradiction with, like, what did you read at the beginning. So we'll have it in a way of a discussion. So, I mean, like, a lot of people would ask me, actually, what did your dad think? And I, I couldn't really, you know, answer them. But, and, like, in a way that um, it really represents what I think. But I think he was, like, in the same path as, like, towards getting freedom, getting people what they want, get um, getting a democratic country, and democratic process. So, through my life, it was, I knew, like, it wasn't really, um, there wasn't um, any kind of, like, um, debate in my mind whether to support any movement or not. Um, so, in the, I mean, there was—it didn't—things st- started, like, officially in March 2011. But since the beginning of 2011, people were kind of, like, waiting what is going to happen since the Arab Spring started in Tunisia and Egypt. Um, the first demonstration was actually in front of the um, Egyptian embassy, Um It was, I think, the end of January 2011, and I was at that um, um, protest. We were holding candles in support of the revolution in Egypt. Um, At that time, I I think it was acceptable because Syria didn't have good relations with Egypt anyway. But I remember we were like about 400 people, and we had at least 2,000 security and army persons around us. It was like a huge... And I remember um, like sitting there and like people were just holding candles and then they started singing like um, a freedom song, very famous, and just talking about like not being afraid of like the military or the army or the armed people. That's when like one of like the officers, he came to us and he was like, hey, animals, get out of here. I remember that at that time, like how I felt, this was like really different, like no one could have the courage to do that. Three weeks later, we had another protest in front of the Libyan embassy in support of the revolution in in Libya, and that time, like security didn't wait for us. They came up like they they started beating people to leave, and someone started screaming, "Shab Suri binzel, Syrians would never be humiliated, and that was like the first time really someone says something. I remember like going back we were like too excited um there were like online calls for protests and um going out to the streets since the beginning of March after that but there wasn't really like um like a real call an organized thing but I remember at that time um so we used to meet in our neighborhood every 2 weeks um notable people um like young activists like me every 2 weeks since beginning of Since I was 12 years old, I don't know when they started. But I remember we would talk every two weeks about, like, you know, events happening in the country, how our government reacts to um, more actually also the regional events. And I remember at that meeting in the end of February 2011, so we're talking about, you know, I was talking how I was, like, so uh, energetic about what is going on, how we should be prepared, like, for, like, protest, how we should call out the people to go out to the streets and someone actually asked me why would we ask people to come out to protest if we know that assad is going to shoot people down and if we know that people are going to be killed and at that time i was like because this is because this is the normal thing to do the world is not would never let assad shoot and like oppress people are calling out for freedom and democracy so Everyone was so excited, and I remember the first protest in March 25th. It was a Friday, the day before. It was me and my brothers, and we were debating, like, like who should go, who should go, and who should stay? Because going out to a protest means either getting killed or worse, getting
0: arrested. Wait, why why was getting arrested worse than getting killed?
3: Because when you're arrested, you will wish to be dead every single moment you're in there. I was detained later in April 27th, the first time. I was taken into uh, one of the Air Force intelligence bases in the outskirts of Damascus because I was delivering aid into a besieged area. I was the first time, I was that time the first one from Damascus to be detained. So they were a little bit curious and kind of like more careful with me. But still, when I got in there, I remember. Seven different um, security personnel were beating me for more than five hours. Not for anything, but this is what they call it, a reception. So when they detain anyone, they just, um, so they like use different methods. They use like lashes, they use electricity. They use something called um, the flying carpet, which is just two pieces of wood tied like to... um, one piece tied to the legs and the other piece tied to the back, and then they close them together so that when they beat me, they would like hit the head and the legs at the same time. So I remember they did that only five like for five hours only so when the interrogator comes, I would not actually have the courage and I would not have I would not have the courage to stand for him and like I would just like say what he wants and I would not waste his time. So they would ask me questions like, oh, where do you go to school? And I'd tell them like where my school is, which is close to where the protests started in Syria and Daraa. So they would just beat me for that. I would, they'd ask me, how many friends do you have on Facebook? Uh, and I told them around that time. I had like 900 friends. They were like, oh, all of those 900 go to the protests." So they were just electricizing me because just because I had 900 friends on Facebook, or just because I had Facebook, even though they didn't even know what Facebook is. At first, they thought Facebook is a flash drive or. But I remember the only thing when, I mean, that I would always think about when I was inside, no matter what happens and no matter what I have to do or what I have to say, the only thing I have to be careful about is actually not to mention anyone's name in any way possible. Even that I was walking back home with someone or I'm neighbor to anyone or even mention any information about my brothers because... My only concern was no matter what happens to me at this moment, no one should be in the same place where I am right now. No one should be in their hands.
0: And you have, uh, you mentioned that you have a younger brother and three older brothers as well. Yes. Uh, I do want to come back to that. Uh, But you had also mentioned um, that when you first were uh, on the streets that you and everybody else thought that the international community would come and support you, that that they would tell Assad to step down and they would support people who are asking for democracy, uh, is that belief something that helped helped you while you were being tortured? And then how did you feel when that support didn't didn't materialize? Inside prison, nothing really helps. I mean, when being inside prison is was the
3: only thing actually that made me um, kind of more conservative, I would say, because the only you really anyone goes inside prison, the only thing that can help you inside is to believe in God, because the only thing is actually that you can wish is for a superpower to come and save you in like where you are or make you make you handle it more or just don't never like lose hope. I mean, I remember I was inside I had I had no idea if someone is going to get me out or not. My family had no idea where I was because also since I was the first one from Damascus to be detained, the intelligence made sure no one would know where I am, so no one would, like, make any calls to get me out also. So they would there was, like, kind of a torture session every, like, day for an hour or, like, an hour and a half. That's for, like, everyone. But I remember when the interrogator came after four days and they were asking each one for the interrogation. So the people like who were like with me in the cell, we were about like 45 or 45 to 50 people. I remember I was the only one who was like, they had a reason to arrest me. I was delivering aid to a besieged area. I mean, uh, something that makes sense. Other people were just there randomly. I mean, four brothers were there because... Their cousin actually, someone like has the same name as their cousin, is on the wanted list. So they arrested the four brothers, and they've been there for two months. Other people had nothing um, to do with anything. Just they fought with the with the security at the checkpoint. But I remember at the um, at that session of interrogation, by the end of it, I was I reached a moment where like they were beating me, but my body had no more power actually to handle torture. That I had no reaction. I wasn't screaming, my body wasn't moving, and I thought at that moment it was like I'm not going to live like to see like what is outside again or like to see my brothers or my family or what's going to happen. So inside it's like even later in the second time I was I was held in a um solitary confinement for 15 days and inside all what I was thinking about is like I'm going to be set in jail. So they told me through that uh, that I was, um, was going to be sentenced for life for spying for international intelligence agencies like BBC and CNN. And all I was thinking is whether would I be able actually to get my degree while I was, I'm in prison or not? Would my grandma be alive when I leave or not? What is going to happen to my mom and and my brothers? What would they think? Every like... I would think about every single thing, but going out because I was sure there was no force that can get me out of their hands.
0: Bobby, let's let's think about the the wider scope of of this tragedy that uh, that has been a part of. Um, can you talk about uh, the Syrian conflict in terms of casualties, displaced people, sure. uh, migrants, refugees, and so on?
2: I mean, there's there's no question that it's the defining crisis of our time. It is an emergency, and it's a complex emergency that is ongoing. Uh, Kutaba's stories um, are one of millions. Um, half of the population has been displaced. 13.5 million are in need of humanitarian aid. Um, there are 6.5 million internally displaced persons in Syria. Um, there are 4.6 million uh, Syrian refugees living in frontline states, It's 2.5 million in Turkey. It's 1.3 million in Lebanon. One in four uh, people in Lebanon right now is a Syrian refugee. Um, Jordan has almost 700,000 Syrian refugees. Iraq has a quarter million. Um, The scope, scale, and complexity is staggering. Um, There are 2 million uh, Syrian children uh, um, who are refugees. And despite all of that, uh, the U.S. has taken... Um, about twenty five hundred Syrian refugees since the uprising.
0: It, it seems to me that a lot of the people in the West didn't even start really paying attention to it until, say, last summer when we started seeing images on the news of all of these refugees trying to get into, say, Greece. Sure. Uh, and, and and what's what's amazing is that that's such a tiny percentage. Of the overall number of Syrians who have been either displaced and are still yeah. within Syria who are in those neighboring countries yeah I mean the, the vast
2: majority are um, either internally displaced or in the frontline states i mean we 're talking in the neighborhood of, of eleven million um, individuals uh, you know who are all in need of help. Um, one of the problems is though that um, in these frontline states um, they are you know their capacity to help is overwhelmed i mean they 're swamped. Um, by By the sheer number of, of refugees there, and uh, we certainly um, have done an awful lot in terms of uh, financial assistance, but it's it's not enough and as as we look forward, um, I know the administration has talked about bringing in another ten thousand refugees. If you want to compare this to the hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees who have made their way to Europe what we're taking is a is a fraction
0: and and um you you talked in the event about your journey uh, from Damascus to Washington. Can you briefly just recount how that came about?
3: I want to go back to what people think the reaction of the international community would be. At the beginning, everyone actually had— Hope that yes, the international community is going to do something. Even the like the Assad regime was using in their media like the propaganda that about the United States and Israel and like and using all the history in the in the past fifty years. Still, all of that actually didn't help him, help Assad regime because everyone thought that despite everything, that even the United States or Israel or like, which the Syrian state considers an enemy even those that are going to come and help them, because it's not a matter of politics now. It's about like a humanitarian cause, a cause that that unites everyone, which is freedom and democracy. I think people kept that hope until the end of 2013. When the chemical attacks happened, um, when 1,400 people were killed in one night, I remember talking to my brother who was um, who, live, who lived there and he was helping, like, evacuating people. And I talked to him after, like, we reached the chemical weapons deal with Assad. And he told me this is a very different moment because people had a lot of hopes that, you know, the world is going to do something. But after the deal, everyone was – he told me that his friends and him they're si- were sitting home for, like, more than a week not talking to anyone. Just people not even are going out to the streets because they didn't want to talk about it. People in like inside Syria in the areas that were liberated, like they will have they will meet every night at the at the coffee shop or at the hookah lounge in like in the neighborhood. And they would talk politics as usual, watch the news before everyone that goes home back home. He told me like no one was even like showing up to the streets because everyone felt that suddenly that they were abandoned, that that all their dreams about like the international community and all their dreams about like um the moral standards that they felt um before as i told you, it's, um before the revolution we felt we envy the american people and and they i mean the west in general for like the, for not for the um not for the luxury life they have not for like Hollywood, but for their freedom, for being able to to be who they are, and you watch the CNN, or you watch even Comedy Central, and you see you see regular people criticizing their leadership, criticizing anyone in their their government, saying what they believe in, and it's normal. This is for 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 Syrians and for people in the Middle East in general. They actually never saw this in their life. It's like it's not even possible. We have a joke that. If you want to criticize the government, you have you, – someone thought about criticizing the government once. So he went back home. He went to his bedroom. He opened the closet, and he went inside the closet, and he was like, oh, it's like, whoo. And then he opened the closet, and he found the security, you know, waiting for him in the bedroom. He was like, oh, come with us. So it's like no one – we would always walk, and, you know, and, like, people would say, um, walls has ears. So, like, never say anything. It's a security state.
0: Yes. Um now you, can you talk about your journey from yeah. Damascus to Washington? Um so I was released the second time um
3: through a special presidential amnesty that my family worked on. Um, but when I was when I was released I realized another uh, intelligence branch tried to kidnap my little brother um so they would force me to deliver myself. So at that time it was the second time was very um it really affected me when I was detained because I was I tr- I started to think more about like, you know, what would happen to my family and the people around me. So when when I knew that my I went back home and I found no one, I knocked on the door, no one answered. So I like went to our neighbors and they told me like this is the ta- this happened and your family is in a safe house out of the city. So for a month, I was trying to um, kind of like see if there is a way that, you know, they would stop going after my brother or they would stop going after me. But there was no hope. So um, my cousin arranged for us to leave to Lebanon. And I went to to Lebanon with my it was only me and my little brother. He was 17 years old at, or at that time. Um, all that I thought about is like, I want to get my brother back to high school to finish his high school. Because when they tried to kidnap him, he was going to do his final exams for high school graduation. It was pretty hard in Lebanon with all the um, uh, with all Hezbollah presence and the uh, Syrian security, uh, Syrian intelligence presence as well. Everyone was afraid um, you might be safe in a, like in a specific neighborhood, but if you leave that neighborhood no one can guarantee your security. So it was hard for us to stay there. Um, and also it was hard to get, you know, residency there. So we left to Egypt at the end of 2011. And we went there. I I was able to put my brother in a school and through that he got um, a residency there. But the Egyptian um, national security didn't allow me to have residency because of my past in Syria. Anyone who was kind of um, democracy activist at that time was... A danger for them, so I had to leave the country every three months and come back to be able to stay in the country legally.
0: You went back to Lebanon, and then you would go back to Egypt. No,
3: I would travel. So I traveled to Jordan. So at that time, I was working on research and like civil society. So I would do training on uh, um, peace building and interface. The same that uh, the same things that I learned from my dad through programs with State Department. Um, So, and I would come back to Egypt, Um, but it wasn't still stable. I didn't feel that, you know, I can stay here. Even in general, the public, I mean, you would think that people in Lebanon and Egypt would be so welcome for Syrians, but it's not really the case. I mean, in Lebanon, the Syrian army, Assad's army invaded Lebanon for 30 years. So, Lebanese don't really like the Syrian presence there. I mean, the Syrian army left Lebanon in 2005, so let me, like, you left us just six years ago, so just, we don't want any more Syrians here. In Egypt, I mean, the situation there was horrible. Um, the economic situation was really hard. And it was hard also for Egyptians to see that Syrians coming into the country, some of them had money, some of them didn't, and they were getting help. So they were like, so Egyptians felt also that we're, like, in a very bad situation? Why is aid coming to Syrian refugees and not to us? So it was a lot of people were welcoming, but at the same time, it was really hard to share resources with Syrian refugees. So it was a little bit uh, hostile, depending on like where you go to. So even there, it wasn't really stable. And for me, it was, yeah, the government was not allowing me to stay. So I didn't really have a choice. So by the beginning of 2013, I was uh, nominated for a program with um, State Department called Leaders for Democracy. Um, so I was able to come here. I um, finished my program and I applied for asylum to stay here.
0: Kateba then you came here to America from Egypt, uh, but did you leave your younger brother in Egypt? And also, how was he and, and how was the rest of your family? So when we traveled to Egypt, so as I said, for
3: to be able to stay legally, I had to leave every three months at that time um so every time i leave out of the country my mom would come from damascus and and f- stay with my brother um the last time was in january 2013 before like when i knew i was like i was coming here so my mom was in egypt preparing you know to stay for some time with my brother at that time the um the intelligence broke into our house in in damascus Um, They seized our property, so my mom was so afraid to be back. My brother, who was in Damascus, had to escape to the countryside um, because they wanted to arrest him too. Um, So my mom stayed with my uh, brother in Egypt until August 2013. After what happened um, with the transition and the military coup, it became so hostile against Syrians and the media didn't really help. My mom and brother had a um, couple incidents where, like, they were, like, going to get in trouble with people on the streets or with taxi drivers because they were Syrians. So they, my mom decided, um, and my brother at that, that time finished his American diploma, his high school. So um, they moved to Turkey, to Istanbul. Um, my brother, my little brother, got a scholarship in, uh, in Istanbul, in, uh, in a university in Istanbul to do political science and cinema. He was an artist since, yeah, very young age. He sings, he draws, he makes small short movies. So that's his his passion. Uh, my mom actually um, has a business administration background. That's what she did in in school, um, but she never actually did any work. She volunteered for two years. Um, at some, like, 20 years ago, helping in a school. So she felt she can use, actually, this experience to help the Syrian refugees in Istanbul. So at that time, along with some other um, former teachers and people who in education, they started a school to work with the Syrian refugees in Istanbul. And now, yeah, she's um, she's the... Yeah, assistant manager for three schools for the Syrian refugees in Istanbul.
0: And then your uh, three older brothers? The oldest
3: one is he's an MIT graduate. So but a long time, the revolution, he was studying here because he got a scholarship here. So he felt he didn't really participate and help people. So after he finished um, his grad school at MIT, he left to Turkey to work on education also with the refugees. Um, The one after he's in architecture in Qatar he left syria because they wanted him to join the military service so he went there and and he's working there right now and the one after he's the one who's left in damascus he's a communication engineer he worked with huawei like a famous um communication chinese communication company but he felt that if he leaves syria he would be betraying people because we were the f- like telling people from the very first days to go out to the streets so we shouldn't be leaving them when, like, things get bad. So he's now in the eastern suburbs of Damascus. Also, along with friends, they run four schools that can, you know, help um, kids continue their education.
0: When was the last time you uh, saw your mother?
3: I mean, I talk to him from time to time, like every week or two weeks through Facebook. The last time I saw him was in 2012.
0: Let's think about kind of the the I don't know the geopolitics of it. Uh, is there going to be a ceasefire? Is there going to be a peace deal? We keep hearing about efforts from the U.S. from the the Russians, um, maybe other players to try to to do something. Um, what is that something? What could be done on the uh, cessation of hostility side? Or do you, do you have any ideas? Sure. I mean, I'm not terribly optimistic with the
2: current circumstances, to be very candid. Uh, We've got Iran in there. We've got Saudi Arabia, which is more concerned about Iran than Syria. We've got uh, Turkey that's very concerned about the Kurds. We've got Russia. We've got Assad. We've got ISIS, and we've got other armed groups. Um, And in the middle of all this, we have uh, Syrian civilians who are um, starving and dying by the day. Um, you asked earlier in terms of numbers, I, I think I failed to mention that, you know, the official count is around 250,000, but uh, there are other reports that, in terms of uh, number of deaths, but, the you know, the uh, there are other numbers that suggest it could be as high as almost a half a million. Um, so I, you know, given the, the dynamics that, that I just uh, sketched out, I'm not terribly optimistic that we're going to see peace anytime soon. Uh, in fact, I'm concerned about um, you know, the half a million um, who are living in besieged areas. Um, you know, folks from Aleppo who are uh, stuck on the border. There's another 30,000 who are stuck on the Syrian-Jordanian border. Um, I think a whole lot more can be done, um, but I also think it's a very difficult space to work in. And I'm uh, I'm not confident that we're going to see much, um, you know, moving forward in, in the next uh, 10 months. It may take a new administration um, to, to see some change.
0: Kuteba, what are some of your thoughts about uh what you'd like to see the the u s government and the the international community do to try to stop the violence in syria? Uh,
3: <laughs> right now it's i mean it's hard to tell right now. I think it was much easier back in time and like but the more we wait, it's getting harder but for me, I mean to be able to go I mean at least to go back to Syria. It's not really only about, like, ceasefire and, like, getting food and water. I didn't leave Cedar because there was no food and water. I mean, as I told you, I'm from a middle-class family. Um, I was attending one of the best universities in Nebraska. basket. I had a scholarship for that. Um, I had a job after school that I would, um, that I got a salary more than, like, like, a very good salary than, like, better than any more people. But I felt I left because I couldn't be who I am, and this is why the Syrians also are leaving. They want to be able to live in in an atmosphere where they can be themselves, where they would not be afraid that someone is gonna knock on their door to kidnap their beloved ones or to kill them, or where or there would be no um, no one is gonna bomb their house in the evening while they're asleep and they would be all left dead. Or they, would be, or they would survive or they would survive the rest of the families are dead. I mean the only um situation where we saw refugees are going back is actually to areas that were um liberated from ISIS and Assad forces, and then when there was no shelling and bombing, people didn't really care if it was destroyed or if there was less food and water, but the only thing they cared about is like they can be who they are and like there was no like consistent chilling and bombing on their houses
0: what would you say uh kutaba to um to those americans and maybe even some europeans who who see this crisis who see refugees coming to our country to germany uh to france and say we don't want you here uh we we're we're worried about terrorism uh, you need to go somewhere else what would you say to that it makes me really
3: sad to hear that especially when when I'm here in the United States. I mean our country and I I call it our country even though I'm not American. Our country was based on the moral standards to help the people in need, to help the people who are who are actually run from religious or political um dictatorship. This is who we are. That's why we came to this country to seek our for our freedom to seek to live the way we you know we would like to live, it makes me sad and I to see people not you know especially politicians not standing to our to our moral standards to what this country was built on and it's really a shame that we're not standing for those for those standards
0: and you've gone through uh two maybe three security checks in your process to get asylum already so yes. it's not like you just show up at the airport and you're free to roam around the United States, there's a really significant process involved in getting asylum to come into the United States, right? Um,
3: Absolutely. I'm not, absolutely. I'm not granted asylum even yet. Um, There is a security check. So after like, after submitting the application, um, there's another security check after Um, the interview, which I I already passed the interview. And then there is a third security check after I'm granted asylum. So before I'm, so I would be, you know, given the decision that I'm accepted for asylum, and then there is a third security check before I'm granted the papers. So it's it's not really that, like, you know, terrorists or like you know anyone is try is going to try to smuggle through that process the same process goes for people in the region i don't think any terrorist is going to wait four years to go through that process and also people in the refugee camps are like far away from from going into like any extremist groups people in the refugee camps are the people who only care about fulfilling their daily needs to get their um mean to get to get their um daily um baby milk and food for for their kids with dignity and that's what they care about to live their you know to th- live their life without without anyone's intervention in it that's what they want I don't think any of those people would be really interested to be part of those
0: groups anyway Bobby can you take tackle the same kind of question
2: sure i i think it's a a great question what should we be telling the american public i mean we've got 31 governors who said that they would like to suspend refugee resettlement and and you know think about michigan my home state we have half a million muslims there um, and yet we've resettled somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 syrians since the uprising um, but with the governor saying, Rick Snyder, with the governor Rick Snyder saying that um, he wants to suspend refugee um, resettlement, it gives the impression, the wrong impression to your average Ameri- your average uh, Michigander that we're taking 250 an hour or a day or a week, and we're not. Um, I think that post, uh, post the Paris attacks and post the San Bernardino attacks, um, there is a lot of fear in America. It's understandable. But I also think that we could use some more leadership um, in trying to dampen those fears. I mean, remember, if you, you might recall when uh, we had the Ebola um, situation, um, President Obama hugged and kissed a Ebola survivor. We've not yet seen the president or the first lady hug or kiss a refugee. And I'm not saying that that hug and kiss is going to change things. But I think it's important that we start thinking and talking differently about refugees. And I think Koteba's powerful stories here today, um, you know, say just that. We need to be thinking differently about refugees. Since uh, 9-11, the U.S. has resettled 750,000 refugees. Of of that 750,000, four have been arrested. Four out of 750,000 have been arrested on terrorism charges. Um, Those are pretty good odds that, you know, the folks that we're resettling here to this country... Um, are not involved in terrorist-related activities, yet that's not known. Um, So I I think that both our government and the media could do a better job of telling stories like kotebas and other refugees who have been resettled from other parts of the world, um, as well as telling stories um, of ordinary uh, Muslim Americans who are contributing in all kinds of ways. The Muslim community up in Michigan. has pooled their money together uh, to buy 30,000 bottles of water that they gave to Flint residents because of the water contamination. A year ago, uh, the Muslim community in Michigan raised over $100,000 to pay the water bills of poor Detroiters. Um, They did this not because they were Muslims. They did this because they are part of Southeast Michigan and they cared about poor Detroiters. Um, These kinds of stories aren't known. And you know what we we are gripped as a public by remarks by certain presidential candidates, and I think you know we would do well um, to listen more often um, to stories like Kateba's.
0: I'm I'm reminded too of the images of the Canadian Prime Minister greeting refugees at the airport and distributing jackets and hugging the children, and it was sure. it was quite a uh, moving. Uh, sight. Yeah,
3: i absolutely. I mean, like I totally agree with like with Robert here. It's like. I think, yeah, our leadership is not taking the the role that they should be taking. And the bad apples in our community are, te- I think, getting more focused than what they really are. I mean, I've been to, like, different communities, been to churches and synagogues in Utah, in Oklahoma, in, in Michigan, in Illinois, um, in Northern California, uh, Northern Carolina, and I've never seen anything then warm hearts and tears on the cheeks. That's what I saw from the like normal people.
0: So you've uh, spent some time traveling around the country?
3: Yes. So I yeah I traveled around some time to talk with the community, tell them more about the Syrian refugees and who we really are.
0: Just to touch on
2: Kutaba's point there, an- another um, issue that most people don't know about is there are a lot of faith-based groups across the country who are involved in the refugee resettlement process. Um, these are Christian uh, groups. These are Muslim groups. These are Jewish groups. Oftentimes, working hand in hand to help refugees be resettled, and you know these stories are not known. And I think it's it's important for uh, for this to be contextualized for your average American to have a better understanding of of you know who refugees are, where they're coming from. That we've only had four out of 750,000 who have been arrested since 9/11. Um, and that there are a range of faith-based groups that are working very hard to try and resettle them here.
0: And Kuteba, I just want to echo what Bobby said. Uh, I totally agree. We do need more stories like yours. Your stories are powerful. Uh, so thank you so much for sharing them with, with us here. I want to ask you before we close, what, what are your expectations? What are your hopes for returning to your home? Do you want to go home? Do you want to stay there? What, what do you want to do when you are able to go back to Damascus.
3: For now I think I want I want to get the most of being here, of being an American. It's different. I didn't feel it's hard to feel close to home, but the closest I felt was actually here. It wasn't in Beirut, it wasn't in Cairo, it wasn't in Istanbul, it wasn't in Dubai. I felt it here in Washington D.C. But I don't know when I would be honestly back home. It's with everything going on, I don't even I I don't even know if I will ever be back home. So for the time, my plans for now is to work the most to be a very good American citizen, um, inshallah, and for the future, yeah, just to work on getting people, helping getting people their freedom, what they wanted. And if I ever, you know, get the chance to be back in Syria, yeah, I mean, I wish, yeah, one
0: day I would be back there. I want to thank you both for joining me today for this very powerful conversation. I uh, thank you especially, Kuteba for your courage to witness Thanks. and testify about what's going on in your homeland. I wish you all the best. Uh,
3: thank you for having me here. Thanks,
2: God.
0: Thank you, K- Kutayba, for coming today and sharing oh, your sorry. stories. Thank you. I encourage all of you to visit brookings.edu and search for the event, Who We Really Are, a conversation with Syrian refugees in America, to hear perspectives from Kuteiba and the three other Syrian refugees on the panel. It's all very powerful stuff. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Kolzer, with editing help from Mark Holsher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitchi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abolahi, Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdelrahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. You can send me feedback email at bcp at Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.